Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. My name is David Burton. I'm Senior Fellow in Economic Policy here at the Heritage Foundation. This is the 13th in our uh, speaker series called Free Enterprise, the Ethical Economic Choice. More information about the series is available at heritage.org forward slash free dash markets. This event and all past events will be available either at that URL or at the Heritage Foundation's YouTube channel. Our next two events um, after today will be Paul Larkin, who's a senior legal research fellow here at the Heritage Foundation, speaking on the Framers' View of Property on March 19th. Uh, The event after that will be Jason Brennan, who is professor of strategy, economics, ethics, and public policy at the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University. And he'll be speaking on Why Not Capitalism on April 4th. I'd also like to bring to your attention uh, an event next Monday, March 11th, uh, at noon, unlike these events, which are at 11. George Aidi will speak on how socialism destroyed Africa. Uh, he, Dr. Aidi has uh, written about economic development in Africa for several decades, and he's going to examine a number of socialist case studies in Africa, including Angola under Dos Santos, Benin under Keriku, Ethiopia under Majustu, Ghana under Nrakma, Guinea under Touré, Mali under Keita, Mozambique under Chisano, and Tanzania under Nwairi. <laughs> I, I don't necessarily warrant that I got the pronunciation of all those names correct, but I'm sure he will. In any event, uh, he's a highly informed individual, and I think uh, for those of you who are interested in the problems of development in Africa and elsewhere in the world, uh, you may find his talk interesting. I'd ask everyone to silence their cell phones at this time uh, so that it doesn't get taped. Uh, And there will be time for audience questions after uh, Paul's presentation. Our speaker today is Paul Winfrey. His topic is Freedom and Solidarity, Why You've Got to Have Both. Paul Winfrey is the director of the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy here at the Heritage Foundation. He is also the Richard F. Astor Fellow here at Heritage. This is his third tour at the Heritage Foundation. He's also, uh, well, he's held a number of positions, but besides being director of the Rowe Institute, he's been director of the Center for Data Analysis and a policy analyst. Prior to returning to Heritage a year ago, He was, there's three jobs here, Deputy Assistant to the President for Domestic Policy, Deputy Director of the Domestic Policy Council, 
and the Director of Budget Policy, all at the White House. During his time at the White House, he authored two executive orders on government reorganization and promoting economic mobility, in addition to chairing the Deputy Committee. Deputies Committee, excuse me. He led the presidential transition team for the budget side of OMB in 2016 and also served as Director for Income Security at the Senate Committee on the Budget. He's published a number of articles on economic history, the history of economic thought, health economics, and welfare economics. He co-authored a book on economic mobility entitled Pathways to Economic Mobility. He's also the author of a forthcoming book that will be published later this year by Paul Grave McMillan called The History and Future of the Budget Process in the United States, Budget by Fire. Uh, Paul is ABD at the London School of Economics, where he also holds a master's degree in economics and economic history. His undergraduate degree is from George Mason University. Please join me in welcoming Paul Winter. Uh, thanks so much, David. It's a, it's a great honor to be with all of you here this morning, and it's a great honor to be part of the speaker series and to be associated through it with so many preeminent scholars. This is really important. A uh, really important topic and um, or series of topics, and I encourage you all to go uh, watch um, all of the lectures as they've been delivered. Uh, and thanks all of you for being here as well uh, to join us in the millions that are watching over the internet. Um, uh, as we're talking about earlier, we 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 expect an Oscar nomination at least out of this performance, um, if that's what it is. Um, I have great energy about this topic, and so uh, I'm going to try not to get too animated um, given the podium. But, um, but I'm going to be talking a little bit this morning about Adam Smith. Adam Smith was the uh, first uh, modern economist, at least that's how many of us think of him. He's also been called the father of capitalism and the high prophet of self-interest. And a couple of years ago, The New Yorker wrote a profile about Smith where they described his views as that he envisioned an open global system of trade powered by envy and admiration of the rich, along with their desires for power and privilege. But ultimately, these descriptions are so containing that they're wrong. What Smith actually was is a social scientist and a virtue ethicist. And people have spent the last 200 years trying to pull him apart, trying to divide him between Smith the social scientist and Smith the virtue ethicist, and then in a bunch of different ways as well. And this is really unfortunate. The real Smith had very interesting insights about human behavior and the way that markets functioned, and ultimately we can learn from them. And so we're going to spend some time this morning trying to put the real Smith back together. So who was Adam Smith? Well, first of all, he was fatherless. His dad died when he was a couple of months old, which made him really close to his mom. He actually lived with his mother for a significant portion of his adult life, including very late in her life. <clears throat> and in his. Uh, he was kidnapped at the age of three, and his uh, uncle rescued him from what can be described as essentially a traveling circus, um, which is, I just find that to be a really interesting tidbit. He was Scottish. He was born in Kirkcaldy, which is on the western coast of Scotland, about 25 miles from Edinburgh. And he was a member of the Church of Scotland, which is a Calvinist denomination. And we're going to talk a little bit of, uh, later about why that's important to understanding Smith, Smith and Calvinism. But what you need to know now is, is that he went to Oxford on a postgraduate scholarship from a guy named John Snell. 
Snell died about 40 years before Smith went to Oxford, and he left aside a bunch of money for uh, young Scottish men to travel south, go learn something about theology, and then to come back to uh, Scotland and become members of the clergy. Uh, but by the time that Smith uh, gets around to going to Oxford, this requirement isn't quite as strong as it had been before. And so Smith doesn't go to Oxford to study theology. Rather, he goes to study moral philosophy, which is something that he had taken up at the University of Glasgow under uh, Francis Hutchinson, who is a really influential person to, uh, to Smith. Being a, uh, being a, a Scotsman, uh, living a significant portion of his life in England, he was very sensitive to hierarchy. And this manifests itself in several ways, including a point that he makes that his professors at Oxford were lazy because they, um, they could, li- they, they, they could live off their endowment rather than attracting students the same way that professors had to do in his native Scotland. It also shows up explicitly in a comment that he makes in The Wealth of Nations that the difference between a philosopher and a common street porter seems to arise not so much from nature as from habit, custom, and education. This is a a concept that we'll keep coming back to in this talk, but Smith was an analytical egalitarian. He thought that people were naturally more similar than they were different, and this is really important to understanding who he was and what he was trying to say about the world. This also influenced one of his most significant insights, and that is is that the propensity to truck, barter, and exchange not only drives us uh, out of self-sufficiency, but keeps us honest and not lazy. Rhetoric to Smith is almost as important as the ideas themselves. It's critically important. And again, we'll come back to this several times. But he was obsessed with the way that arguments were put together, that the way that words were connected with one another. Rhetoric is super, super important. And he affirms to the Italian school where you teach your pupils in private so that you don't come under fury from the public, right? He wouldn't have done something like I'm doing today. Um, uh, and, and, and this creates a really interesting scenario where we don't know a lot about what Smith said in the classroom. There are a couple of bootlegged lectures that we have access to and that have been subsequently published. And it's interesting, and we can talk about this in the Q&A if people are, um, want to know more, but it's interesting to compare the differences between the lectures with, with, with what he wrote. He was a bit more even radical um, than he was in his, in his, in his writing. So why is Smith so complicated? Why has he been, why have people been able to divide him up so, in so many ways over time? Well, David Hume, who was one of Smith's good friends, believed that his works weren't too difficult for the everyday person to understand, right? He was also constantly revising his works throughout his entire life. Again, he's obsessed with rhetoric, okay? So take the theory of moral sediments, which was his first big book. It was initially published in 1758, and he revised it six different times throughout the course of his life, with the final revision coming in the year of his death in 1790. Actually, a few weeks before he died, he, um, he, he gathered together a couple of his friends and asked them to burn all of his private manuscripts because he was worried about how people would, would interpret or misinterpret his ideas in his, after, after, after his death. And he doesn't trust his friends. And so what he ends up doing is basically having them burn the papers in front of him. Out of irony, Smith's misinterpreted a lot. <laughs> Again, he's, he's been divided up in a bunch of different ways 
over the last 200 years. And virtually, this is a comment that uh, that Tomasi made when he gave this lecture earlier. Virtually everyone from uh, 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 from uh, Marx to Milton Friedman can trace something back to Adam Smith, which again begs the question: Who is who is he? He criticized war with France and ultimately with the United States on the grounds that it hurt trade, but he's not an empiricist. He's not hypothesis testing and using sophisticated statistical analysis the way that social scientists would today. In fact, he's not even using sophisticated statistical analysis the way that others would do in his own day. He speaks rather eloquently about the price of corn and other commodities, but this isn't integral to his argument. And above all, he's best understood as a radical, not a conservative. But after his death, there's this effort to split up his views, uh, in particular, his views on freedom and liberty. And this all started when his friend and biographer, the chair of moral philosophy at the University of Glasgow, a guy named Dungal Stewart, there was ever a Scottish name, I don't know if they, Dungal Stewart, that that, that is it, Um, who in many ways is trying to preserve Smith's legacy in a politically popular way, okay? So Smith is already well known in London and Paris and in Washington, D.C., he actually had traveled to Paris to meet Benjamin Franklin, but this doesn't mean that he would be known after his death. And so Stewart is trying to um, to make Smith more lasting than, than, uh, than, than, than maybe he would have otherwise become. And Stewart takes his views on freedom, and he makes them about economics. So economics becomes about economic freedom, whereas liberty becomes about politics. And Smith's ideas on analytical egalitarianism, again, to which he subscribed, toleration, anti-imperialism, and radical religious views, even more radical than Hume in some ways. And he does this so that you could be Smithian in one sense and not Smithian in another. So in other words, you could embrace Smith on free trade, but you could reject Smith on toleration or the separation of church and state. This all, what this ultimately does is it, is, it, um, is it undermines Smith's unified theory of human behavior while at the same time unifying Smith with conservatives and in particular Edmund Burke in the same general sense of laissez-faire thinking. This division also leads to this neoclassical way of thinking about the economy as an emergent or- order separate from the human condition, but ultimately this is antithetical to the real Smith. So to Smith, the natural laws governing the way the universe worked are inseparable from human nature, but he wasn't looking for a universal theory of the universe. Rather, he was looking to say something interesting about human behavior in both the analytical and a normative sense, and he often confuses those two concepts. Now, let me give you an example of what I mean. So in Smith, terms like justice mean the uh, absence of injustice, and he believed that, in general, most people were just. In terms of like normal means something close to the, to the median observation. So, for instance, when Smith talks about natural wages, he means both fairly paid wages and wages where the disturbance is left out or, equilib- or something uh, closer to equilibrium wages or how that's how economists would think of it today, right? So they're the same thing, and he uses those two terms interchangeably. And ultimately, it makes sense in the way that he views the world. 
in the, in these different divisions of Smith, he's also become this high prophet of secular rationalism, similar to Jeremy Bentham's util, uh, 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 happiness maximizing man, or what Deidre McClowski, who's also spoken as part of this speaker series, would call econo man, who's a sociopath, always trying to maximize their utility or max you. So why does any of this matter? Well, Smith was trying to say something about, or to propose, I should say, an integrated theory of human behavior, which is ultimately something that I think we can learn from. This is akin to what one of his apostles, a guy named Richard Waitley, who was the first chair of political economy at Oxford, who went on to become the Archbishop of the Church of Ireland in Dublin called Catalytics, which is the science of exchange motivated by human behavior. And economists keep going back to Smith, even though he died 230 years ago, because they keep finding that stuff that he said or his worldview is actually right. It actually correctly describes what we're seeing. In particular, the experimental uh, economists like Vernon Smith, who won the Nobel Prize in 2002. <clears throat> and again, we can come back to that in Q&A if people are interested. He also has this holistic view of human behavior, much more so than to the typical neoclassical economics textbook would suggest today, and even much more so than behavioral economists would, uh, would suggest. You see, the neoclassical economics today generally subscribes to the idea that mathematical utility theory is bounded through selfish man, which some may call individualism. But ultimately, again, this is antithetical to the real Smith. So what did Smith actually believe? Well, just like he thought that people were basically just, he also thought that people were basically good. And as I mentioned earlier, he believed in this form of analytical egalitarianism, where differences in custom, education, and habit, along with the propensity to exchange, are what drives the division of labor, not innate differences between hum humans. He also believed that there were five basic instincts that all living animals, not just humans, had. Hunger, thirst, passion that unites the sexes, but you didn't think it was one of those kind of talks, did you? <laughs> uh, pleasure, and the dread of pain. And he actually has this really sophisticated view of anxiety transferred through this, uh, this, this, this dread of pain he mentions anxiety 70 times in the theory of moral sediments alone, so much so that it's in, in the, his descriptions of it, it almost seems as if he, he experienced anxiety him, himself. It's a really, really quite, really quite interesting. And added to these five basic instincts was a sixth instinct, which is the desire to be believed or of persuasion. And it was this sixth instinct that Smith thought separates humans from all the other animals, right? It's persuasion. The art of persuasion, not the art of the deal. <laughs> uh, and it was without persuasion that ultimately we would live in this Hobbesian state of nature. So, so Smith believed that there were two forms of persuasion. The first form was a type of fawning. And he actually thought that animals were, were able to do this as well. So like my dog is able to fawn after me in some capacity. The other is a guiding type, which is what I'm trying to do right now to convince you that Smith is worth paying attention to, right? And this is what, this is the actual type of persuasion that separates humans from the rest of humanity. And he believed that if we lived longer, we'd do more fawning and less guiding. And the reason for that is that it's easier. 
you burn less energy fawning. The problem is it takes an awful long time uh, 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 to, to get your way if all you're doing is fawning, right? If all you're doing is basically sucking up to somebody, right? They, they may not come along, right? Whereas if you get to the point, then maybe they will. They, they may be convinced. He also believed that proverbs or rules of thumb were an important way to navigate the world. If Again, if time were infinite, we would navigate the world through trial and error, through our own experience. But, but ultimately, it's not. We don't live forever. And therefore, proverbs give us pretty good information about the median experience for those who came before us. And so he goes into great length about why folks should think about proverbs when encountering the world. Okay. Again, it, it, it conveyed some important information about the median experience of those who, who, they, who, who came before them. Actually wrote an entire paper about this that you can download for free on SSRN called Bringing Proverbs to Policy. I go into great length. It's 80 pages. Go into great length about what Smith was trying to say um, here. But again, it's, it's super important to understanding how he uh, saw um, basic human behavior. So that's Smith, the social scientist. Okay, there are a couple of other little things that you can, you can, you can, you can point to, but that's basically how Smith decide uh, or, or described human behavior in uh, in in its in its own in its own form. Um, but humans don't interact on their on their own, right? We interact with each other in societies and a bunch of other different connections in the marketplace and so on and so forth. And so Smith had, the best way to think about this is Smith had a system of ethics that sat on top of his description of human behavior. So Smith, the virtue ethicist, and Smith, the social scientist, worked together. And this is, again, another way in which he kind of um, uh, blurs this division between uh, normative and analytical ethics. Um, and so the best way that I, the best way to think about Smithian virtue ethics and this is, a, this is, this is not the best analogy, but it's the best one that I can come up with right now. Um, so don't nitpick me too much for this. Is that he was kind of like a Calvinist Thomas Aquinas. Okay? And here's what I mean by that. Here's where the Calvin, again, remember, he was a, he was a member of the Church of Scotland. He was Calvinist himself. And here's where the Calvinism shows up. First place it shows up is, is, is in his invisible hand metaphor. Okay? So the invisible hand metaphor is actually only used three times in all of Smith. It's used once in The Wealth of Nations, it's used once in The Theory of Moral Sediments, and it's used once in a book on astronomy that he wrote that has nothing to do with human behavior. Okay, And there's something that ties, there's a message that ties the invisible hand metaphor together to all three of those uses. That's less about a market void of humanity and more of a message about how there are things that happen in the world that are outside of your control. So you might you might also say this is Smith the Buddhist, right? Um, again, it's more of a message that there are things that are outside of your control. The corn's going to come up. It's not going to come up. People are going to meet. They're not going to meet. You have no control over who the king is. This is this is the this is the invisible hand ultimately at play. It also shows up in his description of the impartial spectator, which is Smith's only real uh, philosophical contribution. And Smith's, uh, in the, the impartial spectator, or what Smith called the man in the breast, had a couple of different parts. 
And he goes into great length, especially in the theory of moral sediments, he goes into great length um, to, 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 to add a fine point to these issues um, uh, about the impartial spectator. The impartial spectator has a couple of different parts. The first part that he has are these basic concepts of rightness and wrongness that you get from something else. It's something that's not you. It's, it's, it's coming from, he doesn't go into great detail about where, the, where it's coming from, but it's, but it's, but it's innate almost within this impartial spectator. Not in you, but in the impartial spectator. And then the second are these rules of propriety, okay? And the rules of propriety are, a lot of economists have focused on this, uh, especially recently. Rules of propriety are like what your neighbor thinks of you, okay? And so the rules of propriety can change based on the circumstances. They can change based on the time. They can change based on your uh, your income. They can change based on your class, based on your education. Um, the rules of propriety of the Heritage Foundation may be different than the rules of propriety at the Brookings Institute. I don't know. I was telling David before I gave this talk that a when I spoke at Google, they played some hip hop music when I walked up here. And that's, that's Google's rules of propriety relative to ours, which is David's beautiful voice. Um, but, um, but, um, but that can change, okay? And the impartial spectator has both of those, both of those things, right? It has, again, both these basic concepts of rightness and wrongness. And then also, how is my neighbor going to think about what I'm, what I'm engaged in. How is he gonna, how are they gonna think about my, um, behavior? And the other interesting thing about the impartial spectator is that the impartial spectator is both within you, it's in, it's the man in the breast, and it's separate from you. It's not you, right? It's the impartial spectator, right? In other words, it's similar to the Holy Spirit, right? Again, this is where Calvinism shows up in Smith. So Smith's virtues. So here's where the Thomas Aquinas shows up. Okay. So basically what Smith does is he takes Thomas Aquinas' seven primary virtues, which I'm sure you can all rattle off the top of your head, right? So uh, Thomas Aquinas' seven primary virtues are this. He takes the three Christian virtues of hope, faith, and love, and he strikes hope and faith. Smith, that is. He says, I don't need those. And the reason that he does this is he's basically trying to impress his friends. He's essentially trying to impress David Hume. And, and if he sounds too Christian, David Hume's going to stop listening to him. And so he throws those out. He says, well, you know, Paul the Apostle says the love was the most important one anyway, so I'm going to go with that one. The other two I'm going to discard. And then he takes the four pagan virtues from Thomas Aquinas, justice, courage, temperance, and prudence. Prudence being self-interest governed through sympathy. And that's really critical. We're going to talk about that in a moment. And there are a couple of different ways to think about how the Smith's virtues all connect with one another. One is on a spectrum from freedom, where prudence represents freedom, to solidarity, where love represents solidarity. Two is on a spectrum from scarcity to abundance, where prudence is a pretty good way to deal with scarce resources, and and love is a pretty good uh, way to deal with abundant resources. And then three is on a spectrum from the self, prudence, to the transcendent, love, what connects us all together. And Smith said that basic society needs two things, needs prudence and needs justice. And prudence is, uh, it's, it's easy to come by, right? It, it doesn't take a lot of work to get, to get prudence in a society. So it takes a little bit of work. 
but it doesn't take a, t- a tremendous amount of work. At the same time, justice, which again is the absence of injustice, takes some work. Okay, and so we would be better off cultivating justice than we would be to, than to cultivating prudence, because if we don't, then ultimately basic society falls apart. But we don't want to stop there. So Smith said, what we, what, we, what we want is we want a society that is essentially based on all the virtues, right? We want to keep aspiring to the, to the, to the new and higher level virtues. And Smith says that love, on the other hand, from prudence and justice, is this connection that we have to the divine in this highest form of society. This is, again, what we're, what we're trying to, to, to strive for. And the way to read Smith correctly is that he uses, um, very clearly does this, he uses the terms love and benevolence interchangeably, uh, in particular in theory of moral sediment. So when you read, if you were to go read TMS, and I hope you do, I encourage you to, um, you should, when you see love, put in benevolence. When you see benevolence, put in love. And I'm going to read you a quote from TMS. This is Adam Smith. The maximum benevolence possible Universal benevolence for all living things, whilst not the path to happiness, is implied to be the closest the man can get to the divine, which strongly implies that any other virtue, including self-command, which is secondary virtue in Smith, that's beside the point, is secondary. Okay? Benevolence or love is the top virtue, every everything else is secondary. So does this, does this sound anything like the description that was made in the New Yorker? No. Again, people have spent a long time trying to divide Smith and split him up in different ways to make him what what he is to to their own. Even self-interest in Smith, or what he would call prudence or self-love, is not selfishness or greed. Rather, it's synonymous with self-love governed by, or excuse me, self-interest governed by sympathy, or something akin to what we would call empathy. To Smith, in order for trade to exist, it has to be reciprocal. And in order to have reciprocal trade, it needs to take place among equals, that's where the analytical egalitarianism comes in, and where they're treating each other's preferences as if they're, they are one's own. Okay? Again, governed by, governed by sympathy. So this is similar to Christ's golden rule, which is not about loving your neighbor as much as yourself, but loving your neighbor as yourself. And in fact, Smith brings up Christ's golden rule just as many times in his works as he brings up the invisible hand. I've also written papers about this. Adam's actually read them. (laughs) Right? So it's really, really, really quite, really, really quite interesting. And so how does this happen? Right? Well, Discussion in Smith is essential. And in order to have discussion take place, you've got to have the ability to persuade. Okay, you've got to have that sixth sense. And you've got to have the openness to being persuaded in the first place. In other words, you've got to be open to being wrong. If, you, if you're not open to being wrong, if you're not open to persuasion, you can't have discussion, right? And it's sympathy with your trading partner that carries this energy, that allows this to happen in the first place, okay? Making your trading partner's preferences your own or reflected in your own self-interest. 
So compare this to the human default mode of me first, right? Where Smith says, uh, Smith would say that under me, when me is only me, you can't have trade. You've got to be able to think about your trading partner. You got to be able to think about their wants, their desires, their, you know, their, what they're trying to get out of this, right? And you've got to ultimately internalize those preferences in your own decision making. And this is why Smith brings up Christ's golden rule, right? Because the condition's weird. It's not the default. But it doesn't mean that it's not the natural condition, okay? That's what, that's what Smith would say, at least. It doesn't mean that it's not the natural condition. See, the natural condition in Smith is when we're interrelated as equals. Again, he's, he's pre- this is pretty radical stuff, right? It's when we're interrelated as equals. And this is when bad stuff happens when that, that dynamic isn't present, right? Smith would say this is when people get taken advantage of. This is when, this is when people get robbed and, and, and stuff like this. And he also says this is one of the things that drives the, um, the conflict between the different classes. Because the different classes don't treat each other as equals, right? This is why Smith would say you need laws sometimes. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to create a new system. And I don't mean laws from the government, but, 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 but social laws and more of a Hayekian sense. So, for instance, Smith would say that the ten, ten Commandments or something like the Ten Commandments is a social rule. It makes sense because what's on the tablets isn't the default, right? It's not automatically intuitive, okay? So, in, in other words, the Ten Commandments doesn't say don't kill yourself. That's intuitive, right? What it says is don't kill, don't kill somebody else, right? That's not necessarily always intuitive, not having one God. That's not necessarily always intuitive. Humans have experimented with having lots of gods, right? But Smith isn't a theist, even though I, I think he is very much obviously inspired by his own uh, beliefs. Um, but he says nothing about the afterlife. Okay, And lots of people have pointed this out, trying to make the case that Smith was a deist or even an atheist. Um, Smith says in Wealth of Nations, that ultimately it's all about right here. It's all about life on this planet. It's all about the happiness, quote unquote, the happiness and perfection of human life on earth. And ultimately, this, what, how, what does this mean for policy, right? We're, we're, this is the Heritage Foundation. We're a public policy think tank. This all may be very interesting and that's interesting to me. It's clearly interesting to Burden. Um, but what, but ultimately, what does this mean for practical public policy? Well, in Smith's day, policy is, was synonymous with the word police which is about force. And Smith would say that, 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 that policy was the wrong place to search for improvement. So ultimately, if what you're trying to do is push a higher level of society or push a society into embracing more virtues, you can't have force, right? Because if you hold a gun to somebody's head and say, go take that hill, and they take the hill, they're not displaying courage, right? They're, they're, they're acting on uh, the gun being held to their head, right? So what Smith said we should rather do is hold people up in our society that display these types of virtues. They don't have to display all the virtues, but they should display some of the virtues, right? So if there's someone who's particularly courageous, we should celebrate them. If there's someone who's particularly temperate, then we should celebrate them. If there's someone who exhibits uh, uh, love, we should celebrate them as well. Uh, 
Smith also believed, and again, I, this, this goes back to the liberty concept and his very radical uh, views at the time, but he was a, a big proponent, goes into a great detail in both TMS and Wealth of Nations about this. He was a big proponent of the separation of church and state, radical religious freedom. And he believed, in essence, that if the uh, guys that have the guns also get God, then you're in trouble. You're in big trouble. Um, in part, because what religion does is, is that it helps keep people generally moral, it helps keep people from killing each other, um, and thinking about this kind of stuff. But also, when you have perfect competition amongst uh, religion, ultimately it does two things. The first thing that it does is it gets you uh, a, a, a more perfect form of those, um, of the, of those lines of thought, uh, and it keeps people occupied, right? He had this debate with Hume, who thought that the clergy um, in the Church of England were fairly lazy, and so in order to get them to go away, we would just give them money, um, and they would they would go off to their country estates, and we would never hear from them again. Smith said, "This is crazy. They're they're going to take your money, and they're going to take our liberty." So that's the last thing that you want. Rather, what we want them to do is constantly have to defend themselves against everybody else. And if they're doing that, they're going to be they're going to be less likely to get into other areas of their of their life. Um, other folks have pointed out that Smith was uh, for um, uh, state state subsidies for education. That gets back to his um, belief in analytical egalitarianism, but it pretty much starts and stops there. Uh, he also uh, doesn't reference um, immigration all that much. It's a pretty, pretty hot issue today. The only instance in that he references immigration is um, uh, the old, and at the time, the old English poor laws uh, basically said that if you were if you were poor, if you if your if your if your um, annual income was below a certain level, um, uh, uh, you couldn't leave the parish that you were born into. So basically, what it did is, is it locked all the poor people into the communities that they were that they were born in, and um, and uh, and created all sorts of problems. And Smith said this is absolutely crazy, right? And Smith again, he was writing at the forefront of the Industrial Revolution, a little bit too early for the Industrial Revolution to really be getting getting off here. But he's writing just before it takes off. But he says, you know, look, if if the jobs are in Lancaster and you were born in London, you know, you need to, and you're poor, you need to be in Lancaster. You shouldn't be in London. Um, uh, another sort of interesting area that, again, that Smith gets into that's a little bit um, anachronistic is that he was for subsidizing uh, the, the, the arts, um, something that George Washington was also uh, supportive of. And uh, the reason that he was for subsidizing the arts is because he really liked satire, and he thought that satire um, kept the powers that be honest. Um, so, uh, so, so if the powers that be again are having to defend themselves against uh, artists who are making fun of them, then maybe they're not taking our liberties from us. Um, but with that, uh, why don't we open this up to Q and A? Um, and yeah, thanks so much. Well, we have time for uh, questions. I would ask that, uh, well, there, there's two gentlemen with mics, so if you just raise your hand. But before you ask your question, if you would identify yourself in any institutional affiliation. So, questions. 
Thank, thank you very much. Mushtaba Ahmad from Inclusion Forum. Um, could you elaborate on the invisible hand the metaphor that he uses? This you, you, you said that he uses it three times or three places. Yeah. Could you elaborate just a, just a tab on that? Yeah, so, 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 as I mentioned, he used it three times: once in the theory of moral sediments, once in the wealth of nations, and once in a book that he wrote on astronomy. And economists, economic historians, have really struggled with the invisible hand, uh, even though Paul Samuelson never did. Um, but our our, our basic. Uh, Thoughts on the invisible hand being a um, being that the the market drives outcomes again void of human interaction or void of void of uh, void of humanity is from um, is from uh, seems to be from 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 Samuelson's interpretation of its uses of his of its usage in the wealth of nations and it seems like Samuelson got that from Stigler. Uh, George Stigler, who is also a Nobel Prize winner, um, professor at the um, at the University of Chicago, who should have known better, uh, because Stigler surely uh, did write a, uh, about about um, TMS and Smith's other works, and um, and uh, and so he should have seen that there that there are distinct differences in all of those cases. Um, but it, but it has led to great debate, and the reason that it's led to great debate is because it seems to be that they're that they're being used in three different capacities, right? And so if everybody reads Samuelson and then goes back and reads The Invisible Hand in TMS or in the or in this book on astronomy, they go, well, what? The, like, take the book on astronomy. Like, there, there, there's no there's there's no mar- there's no market, you know, working in this within this regard. So what's he talking about, right? And so the, the only real theme that I can see that strings through all of those examples, again, is that it's, it's about things that are happening that are outside of your control. Right? It's, it's like, um, it's uh, Smith's version of the seven habits of highly effective people, right? It's like you've got, you've got your circle of influence and then the invisible hand is all that stuff that's happening outside your circle of influence. Hi, Diane Katz, Heritage Foundation. Could you talk about how all of these elements, maybe not all of these elements, but some of the more important elements um, influenced or impacted the, the American economy going forward from, let's say, publication of Wealth of Nations in 1776? Well, like I said, um, it is... Um, we know that Ben Franklin met Adam Smith because Smith write, has wrote about it and his friends wrote about it um, on a trip that he made. Uh, Smith visited Geneva and, um, and Paris. Um, we also know that Alexander Hamilton was familiar with the wealth of nations. He, he also referenced it in his writings. Um, uh, w- within regards to how it influenced his or or the say creation of the financial system um, in the early republic, um, they were they were clearly drawing on lots of different things, in, 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 including Smith, right? I mean, one of the concepts that Hamilton seems to have internalized personally, um, which again goes completely. This is actually in my forthcoming book. This is my plug. Um, but uh, Hamilton, even though he's often thought to be this this protectionist. Um, in verbiage, wasn't a huge protectionist in practice. 
because he realized that we needed robust trade, in particular robust trade with Great Britain in order to be successful. Um, and we also needed them to buy our debt. Um, Smith in, and this, now I'm getting into, I mean, this is, this goes beyond basically what I, what, what my talk was about. Um, but Smith also had a fairly sophisticated grasp, which he writes about in Wealth of Nations on international debt markets and, uh, debt management. And that, I think, very much influenced Hamilton. Um, Smith writes about the benefits and costs of a sinking fund which, again, this is all in my forthcoming book, um, and uh, which was an old, basically an a, a, a old way to retire um, debt um, and issue new uh, securities. Um, he also has a really interesting... So basically, um, Smith uh, has a more nuanced view on government debt, okay, um, in that he doesn't... He, he comes out and says that the private sector would, is, 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 is better with the resources than the government, sort of period. Um, but at the same time, he, he says, you know, but the, but the folks who are buying the debt in London are the merchants and merchants usually make pretty good decisions. And so the system isn't really that bad. At the same time, the folks who are buying the debt in Paris are all the landed aristocracy who are just looking for an annuity for the rest of their lives. And that's, we don't want to encourage that. So debt markets in Britain, better than debt markets in France. And that very much, like I said, you can definitely see that in Hamilton's writings uh, early on as Treasury Secretary. Let me just also mention to people how they can uh, learn more. Um, for one, the Liberty Fund has online, a, a free and well-edited version of Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiments. And then there's a book I, I might bring to people's attention. I don't, I don't know if you've read it, but Russ Roberts' book, which is, I think, called How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life, yep. which is basically a summary, if you will, of Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiments in a modern idiom. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, he goes into great great detail on the, on the on the concept of sympathy, which I talked about. Other questions? This gentleman in the back. Thank you, Gerald Chandler. Could you elaborate on these uh, poor laws that kept people in place? The people who were in favor of those laws, why did they um, have them and how successful was Smith against uh, arguing against them? And from recent reading about the South and sharecropping, it seemed that they had the same effect for black people, that they were kept on the farm, yep. that they really couldn't move very far, even though if by the Constitution they were free people. Yeah, you're exactly right about sharecropping. There's a uh, Robert Fogel has written on this, as well as uh, Joe Reed, who I think is retired now, but was at George Mason for a, a long time, an economic historian, um, drawing on the same principles that, that he picked up by reading uh, reading Smith. In terms of how, how successful is Smith in advocating for um, uh, the removal of those restrictions? Well, he publishes the book initially in 1776. He dies in 1790, and Parliament repeals the prohibition in 1834. Um, uh, his arguments definitely inspired um, the folks who rewrote the poor laws in 1834, and in particular, a gentleman named Nassau Sr., 
um, who was a, uh, a friend of James Mill, uh, John Stuart Mill's father, um, who all read Smith, knew Smith very well. Nassau Sr. Um, was um, uh, uh, taught by, um, uh, um, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm forgetting his name, even though I've already referenced it today, the first chair of political economy at Oxford, um, Richard Waitley. He was taught by Richard Waitley. Um, so he, he would have, he would have known that stuff and he, and Nassau authored the Poor Law Commission report. Um, the, the evolution of the Poor Laws is its own extremely interesting history. Um, that essentially is based back to the English Reformation, right? So before the English Refor- Reformation, the Catholic Church is essentially taking care of things. Um, when, uh, when, 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 uh, everything was essentially, uh, done away with, um, they had to come up with a replacement. They tried to mandate that people, uh, put money into the alms boxes, um, kind of like the, uh, cartoon version of, um, Robin Hood, you know, and alms, everyone's got a, and, um, and that didn't work very well. And so, uh, in, in the, uh, reign of Elizabeth the first, they, uh, put in place the first English poor laws, which led to this, you know, basically game of whack-a-mole for 200, 250 years where basically problems would arise and they would address that problem without thinking about the, uh, the effects that it would, that it would otherwise create. And so in the middle of the 1600s, I think it was under James the first, but I'm not positive about that. Um, they saw that there was this problem and the problem was, is that people, is that the poor were migrating from poor areas to rich areas and the rich people didn't like that very much. And so they lobbied Parliament to change the law. And what they came up with, again, in this game of whack-a-mole, was, well, you can't, if, you, you, if, if, if your name is attached to a parish in a certain area and your income is below a certain amount, you've got to move back there and you can't leave. Um, so, and it, and it, it stayed on the books. I, I, I'm almost positive it, ha- it like I said, it was, it was around the time of James I. So it stayed on the books for 200 years. Um, and again, had, had led to significant rigidities in the, in the, in the, in the labor market at the time that obviously Smith picked up on. So. Adam in the back and then this gentleman over here. Adam Michelle here at the Heritage Foundation. There's a narrative going on right now that maybe growth, economic growth, maximizing economic growth isn't, shouldn't be the, the goal of policy all the time that this is sort of, it's been, uh, we've, pursued growth at the expense of other things for too long as it's coming from both the left and the right. How can you talk a little bit about how Smith can help us think about that debate right now, what he would say about it and um, any other thoughts you might have? Smith almost thought about it as being endogenous, like growth was endogenous to other things, right? So so the way that you got opulence was a derivative of the division of labor, right? And the division of labor is a um, is a derivative of basically our characteristics, right? And the way that we exchange with one another and take advantage of the division of labor is by creating societies, right? And it's the, it's the ethics, it's the, it's the virtue ethics that you have to push forward, uh, in order to get anything, in order to get trade, in order to get growth, in order to get, in order to get anything. And so I, I honestly think that a lot of this discussion about, and I mean we, we talk a lot about about this around here, but a lot of this discussion about does does policy focus on growth or does it focus on something else, it, or, or should we focus on something else? These these camps are talking past each other, 
Okay, they just they they, they just are. Um, I I think that the uh, some of the the reasoning for why they can do that comes back to basic concepts of welfare economics, right? So basic Samuelsonian welfare economics tells us that who creates the wealth? Government creates the wealth. How does government create the wealth? It creates it through policy. It either cuts taxes or increases spending, and all of a sudden growth happens, right? And because the government creates the wealth, the government's job is also to redistribute the wealth. And it sure is a great thing that we have all of these technocrats who are going to sit around and tell us about exactly how to do that, right? That is That whole mindset is just... It's antithetical to, to to Smith, right? It's 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 it just it it he's talking about a different universe, and um and I I think honestly that what what we would be well placed to do is to is to get back to some of these some of these principles, challenge basic concepts of welfare economics, which I think it's easy to get down that uh, down that rabbit hole, and um and think about how you know, growth is actually created, right? What what actually leads to trade between free people, which is which is fundamental here. Let me just interject something. <clears throat> Paul's bringing up this subject of, of virtue ethics, which I think uh, is having a resurgence in academia, uh, which is a good thing. But we've had yeah. two, two speakers in this series that uh, – I think you might want to, to focus on Deirdre McCluskey and in particular her work on bourgeois uh, virtue. And then uh, uh, Ed Fazer and, and a number of, of his works are a, a version of, of virtue ethics. And then the, the other uh, academic I'm aware of that's working in this area that I think is uh, interesting is John Cakey's who wrote the uh, a number of books, but one that's uh, take your proverbs and examples. Exemplars, in particular, is called the art of life. Yeah. Can, I, can I say one, one other yeah, thing? Sure. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of economic historians have looked at this question re- more recently, and um, and there are three basic competing fact uh, things are going going on. That and uh, so Deidre McClowski thinks that growth is essentially a derivative of again the the um, proliferation of the of bourgeois virtues, right? Which is essentially, which essentially means, um, people stopped hating people who made money. That's ba- that's that's basically Dieter's theory, right? Um, the second is that of Greg Clark, who wrote a book in two thousand and seven. Which um, Greg Clark's another interesting guy. He and Dieter don't like each other, or at least they don't like their idea, each other's ideas. Basically, what Greg Clark says is that no, 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 it wasn't. This, it wasn't this spread of bourgeois virtues rather what it what it was is a um a uh, a rise in materialism amongst rich people in uh, England and uh in and, and actually this is a couple of weeks ago I interviewed Hal Varian who's the chief economist at Google and we were just talking about this subject he actually subscribes to this he says you know it's he says when you when you look at what everyday people can afford today it's what the it's what the rich folks were demanding 20 or 30 years ago and ultimately that's what that's what drives innovation and 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 growth and um but again i think he's sort of putting the carpet between the horse but anyway besides the point and then the third is by a guy named Joel Mokier 
who's at Northwestern University. Um, I also encourage you to go look at Joel's work. And what Joel says is, no, really, really what it was, it was attitudes about um, nature, right? And all of a sudden, humans woke up one day and decided that we could basically harness nature and use that to uh, improve our own improve, improve our own uh, con- conditions. Um, the interesting thing about them all, even though they they, they purport not to agree with one another, um, the interesting thing about them all is that it's all about culture, right? It's all about there's something else going on, you know, beneath the uh, the normal way that, that economists kind of think about economic growth that led to an environment that fostered growth, right? And that that concept I think is really important and Smithian, right? And um, and and we we would do we we would do better uh, to study that um, than than uh, what than, than other basic things in, in welfare economics might tell us to do. So. This gentleman back here. Hi, um, Raúl Romero from Venezuela, um, and I was wondering. Um, I heard it, it was really interesting to hear you uh, talking about his views on immigration and the laws at the moment. And I know this is not a talk about immigration, but I was wondering, wouldn't you see him arguing for more? If you know Adam Smith were to live today, to more liberalization of immigration policy since you know immigration controls takes us take us away from a potential higher output in the world and and impede the free flow of human capital yeah uh like i said i mean that wasn't i mean think think about it like this cross-state immigration right um intrastate immigration was costly in smith's day going you know across so the um, so just recently looked at this the 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 um, the cost of taking an ocean bound voyage from uh, New York to London in 1840 was about forty five thousand dollars in today's money. Okay, um, that's before before steam, and so this just wasn't a, a bit. I mean, immigration was not that big of an issue because the only people who were immigrating. Were rich people, like really rich people, um, for that for that reason, and then other sort of other cultural reasons. Um, uh, but yeah, I think that you're I think that you're generally right. If if we were to dig him out of the grave and you know and put some juice in him or something and ask him what his ideas are today, uh, I think that he would he would generally be more pro liberal uh, liberaliz- liberalization. Um, not just of labor, but of capital and, you know, everything else, too. Um, I mentioned his lectures uh, earlier and that we don't know a whole lot about what he said in the classroom. We do have a couple of bootlegged versions and um, of his lecture notes from the 1850s, excuse me, 1750s. And uh, one of the interesting things that shows up in those lecture notes, and you can find them online, um, Dan Klein, who's an economist at uh, George Mason University, he's done lots of great work on Smith, by the way, has published some of his lecture notes uh, through his um, his journal. Adam, do you remember what his journal's called? Econ, whatever. Yeah, I'll, maybe I'll think of it later. Um, but one of the one of the things that you see between the differences in those bootleg lecture notes and his writing is that he's more radical in his lecture notes. So he basically, in his writing, in, in, in TMS and Wealth of Nations, he says things like, you know, well, maybe the government has a place here or a place there, right? Um, in his lectures, he says, 
Maybe it does, but it probably doesn't, right? And I, I think, and this is just me putting myself in his own, in his, in his brain, so it, it very well could be very wrong. Um, but I think what he's trying to do when he's writing TMS and Wealth of Nations is, again, he's trying to appeal to an audience that is not going to necessarily share his worldview. And so, therefore, to do that, you know, he, he, he can't lead with, you know, just blow the state up um, because he would not be taken seriously. Um, and uh, but yes, I, I, I generally I generally agree with where you're, where you're going with that. Good. Yeah, Stephen. Steve Anton, a senior fellow emeritus at uh, Tax Foundation. Um, I wonder if if Smith and perhaps Jean-Baptiste Say aren't approaching growth from a more fundamental cause yeah. than some of the more modern people you just cited. Uh, Say basically said, if we can do more, we will. Yeah. Wants are infinite, and we'd like to improve the world. And uh, Smith is saying, you know, that's in human nature to, to make this happen in the best and most efficient uh, and most cooperative way. Uh, and uh, that's one comment. And, and the other comment is on, on uh, immigration and movement. Yeah. Smith had quite a detailed explanation, still valid today, uh, that the uh, capitalist, that the owner of capital, is a citizen of the world, and if you beat up on him in one jurisdiction, he'll take his capital yes. to the next one over. Yeah. So I think in both labor and capital, he was probably pretty much a, a free movement guy. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's good comments. All right, we have time for one more question. If there is one. All right, in that case, thank you very much. Uh, and the next event in this series is March 19th, uh, Paul Larkin speaking on the Framers' view of property. Thanks again. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. You're great. Yeah. If you want to.